Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 167, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, an update on how teachers are faring now that many are back in the classroom. And with a hurricane approaching the Gulf Coast, will schools go virtual or just take a weather day? Stay with us. Class Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, we're going to be making a case for the liberal arts. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here. Today is September 13th, 2020, and I'm joined by friend, principal, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how was school last week for you guys? Things settling in or still a little crazy? Things are settling in. Um, it's always crazy. So that's that's the norm. You know, um, that's just my opinion. But I think we had another good week. Ups and downs of just school life. But, um, you know, no severe outbreaks. I don't have a ton of teachers absent. We're still taking day by day and following the protocol, but I think everyone's gotten into their groove. But, you know, we have kids who are just deciding to return to school. And that makes some of us uncomfortable because they have not been a part of the culture the last three weeks. Mm -hmm. And so they're just coming back and they're the ones we're saying, "Uh -uh, get get in line, social distance, wash your hands, you know, put your mask back over your nose, that kind of thing. Well, and we've been kind of keeping up with the numbers for our state and just letting people know where we stand. And I pulled the most recent data. And again, this will run all the way through September 4th because the new batch of data is not out yet. But um, through September 4th, the state of Mississippi, since the start of school, we are now up to 604 teachers slash staff testing positive and then 1,094 students testing positive. So those numbers continue to inch up. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily call it a widespread outbreak There's anywhere. Still not astronomical, and I am so much more comfortable with that. Yeah, and it's it's been interesting to watch kind of what would happen once we started school. Now, there has been some um, rough news as well. We did have a teacher yeah. um, on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, I believe it was Van Cleve High School, who mm-hmm. he passed um, from COVID-19. However, I was reading one article. It says that he they believe he contracted it outside of school. Um, at a different right. at a different gathering, but um, unfortunately, he had complications with that. And then I started getting curious, and I said, "Okay, well, you know, many states um, have been in school already, and the rest just seem to fall in line after Labor Day. So, how are we doing?" And um, it looks like Forbes magazine is reporting, as of just a couple days ago, that at least six U.S. teachers have died um, from mm-hmm. COVID nineteen since school reopened. Um, so um, that is extremely tragic. Um, we will see if that continues to grow. I mean, it, it, death is, it seems to be such a, a lagging indicator. Of course, I'm going to be an advocate for um, school systems. You know, we work very hard, and so we band together in that sense. Um, and I'd like to say that school systems are doing their absolute best um, in regard to you know, following protocol, establishing protocol, first of all. But I want to point out some things socially. Um, 
One thing that I have noticed, not only just from social social media tracking, but just from you know people I know and different things of that nature, there's a lot of weddings taking place. There's mm-hmm. a lot of social gatherings happening. Labor Day weekend was really no different for a lot of people um, than it ever has been. And that is what concerns me when we talk about teachers contracting um, COVID-19 and taking it back to school. And then it appears that it's living within a school building when in essence, we can't track where adults go and what they do on their off time and what they do on their weekends. What we can do though, as we socialize with others and follow them on social media is go, Hmm, you Hmm. attended a wedding this weekend and there were lots of people there and lots of people on that dance floor. (laughs) And so now, hmm, and you're going back to your school building. So, you know, there's some give or take and a lot of little factors that we can't control. Yeah, it it is rough. And I mean, I see people I know on social media, um, you know, we try to be careful. We have intermingled as a family with like one other family at a time. You know, it's like, hey, let's have a get together or something. And, um, we've, we've been you know fairly comfortable doing that. Um, however, but I'll you've see- agreed to intermingle with that same family. Right. And, and, you know, you've kind of watched this family and like, are they a cautious family? Are they reckless in their COVID ways? You know, you kind of and like, all right, well, they seem cautious. So let's, let's give it a go. And, but what kills me is I see like my friends, um, and people I just know on, on Facebook and it's like, 20 families deep like group pictures and mm-hmm. i'm like whoa that those start to make me uncomfortable when i see people grouping together with that many folks it's worrisome not only that i still have associates that i see taking girls trips and it's seven to twelve <laughs> mm-hmm. um maybe i just don't have any friends but that's a lot of um, people to consider close friends and need to have a beach getaway and you know one thing i'm not seeing a lot of and, and maybe I don't know if I'm just not exposed to it, but I don't, I'm not tracking or seeing a lot of people traveling afar or abroad, but just hitting the beach, hitting the casino together as a group, hitting the spa together as a group, that still concerns me. And I'm still refraining myself mm-hmm. from participating in some wonderful events that I, I miss. Right. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Now, I have to ask you a question. Logic would tell us once school started and you start to have teachers say, you know, I have a runny nose or I feel a sore throat coming on, they're going to need to call in sick uh, as a precaution. Mm-hmm. And that's going to take its toll. Um, so it has, as, happened. It ha- has it been taking its toll? Can you guys find um, substitutes so far? How's that part of the world going for you? Without a pandemic, it takes a toll from a principal's perspective right. because you can never replace a high, highly qualified teacher. In saying that it can take a toll, even without a pandemic, it can take a toll when you're you know, speaking from a principal's perspective because you can never replace a high quality teacher. But I will say that um, it's just worrying some every day when you, ch- you check your phone to see who's going to call in sick. I am not... Um, afraid or ashamed to say we've only had one positive case um, in our building since teachers and staff returned. Mm -hmm. It did not impact anyone, not even the students. So we didn't have to have a quarantine or follow the extensive protocols. But even for that teacher, once school started, yes, it's been it's been a concern every day to have that class covered because we're doing so many different things. And even for the teachers to have to learn on a sliding scale right now, it's even more difficult for an administrator when you have to have a substitute. Is a substitute showing? What is that substitute doing 
um, when they're not at your school because they were not a part of all of the extensive training that we had in regard to fighting COVID-19. So uh, do you think or are you hearing other principals just really being impacted like this? Have you heard of maybe another? Yes. You know, go ahead. Yes, I have some colleagues who, for lack of a better phrase, are living in some hot spot areas. And so they have teachers that that are, you know, positive or have been uh, exposed to someone. That's mm-hmm. the bigger issue. Right. If you've been exposed to someone um, that has tested positive and you may test negative, you still have to quarantine for 10 to 14 days. And that is what's hurting a lot of schools. Are you finding, though, that the substitutes are available? Are you moving teachers around? What do you think is happening? Well, we're doing a number of things in our district. First, let me say that um, for those of us who have been in school for a few weeks, you still have families who are um, afraid or uncomfortable, and so they're not sending their children to school. You have families who, for whatever reason, aren't even registering their children for school. And at this point, we've had to do no-shows and dropping those students and then referring them to the truancy officer, the attendance monitor for the state. And so that's made an impact on families saying, okay, I got to get it together. Let me get my kids to school. Well, when they begin to do that, and if we have any issues with teachers being out, then it is very stressful because there are only a few people willing to return as substitutes. A number of people who have children who were substitutes are keeping their children at home and refraining from helping out with the substitute pool. So Mm. it it is an issue. Yeah, I imagine it's only going to continue to, especially in larger cities as well, where there's there's more demand. Um, Well, and I'm in a smaller area. And what I have found is we have two or three very faithful um, substitutes that we've been relying on um, for the last few weeks. But at the end of the day, one of the best decisions that our district could have made was this. So when I talked about students not enrolling in school and parents either enrolling them, but then not having them arrive at school, I said all that to say. So then that impacts your teacher to student ratio. And so in some buildings, you have numbers Um, they have decreased. And so you have staff who, I don't want to say they don't have anything to do, but they don't have enough students to truly occupy their time. So one of the things that we are doing is we're moving those employees around within the district. Mm -hmm. So for example, we have a teacher who's out right now on FMLA, has absolutely nothing to do with the pandemic or COVID-19. But instead of spending that money on a sub, especially because it might not be one of our faithful high quality subs, we're moving an employee from one school to our campus okay. to help us fill that spot for the next six weeks. And so we're looking at making arrangements in that sense, because what's impacting schools all over the nation right now is your numbers are down. And are you going to have to cut units on top of that? Because the economy has been suffering. That also impacts your education funding. And then ultimately the number of units that you'll have for next year. A uh, different subject. I'm really curious to see what happens this week here in South Mississippi, because um, for those that keep up with the weather, we have a tropical storm, which will probably be a hurricane by landfall. Um, not necessarily a strong hurricane, but, um, you know, I have a background in weather. And my concern is that we're going to be dealing with uh, a lot of flooding. I and mean, we're talking about a ridiculous amount of rainfall on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, somewhere between probably 10 to as much as 15, 16 inches of rainfall will be possible down there. I say all that to say, um, I'm, what's going to happen now that schools are prepared to do virtual learning at the flip of a switch, 
are we going to see those schools just to say on the Mississippi Gulf Coast say, all right, we're doing virtual learning on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday because of this storm? Are they going to just simply shut down school for a few days because of a weather event? What do you think is going to happen? Well, I have to disagree with you right off the top because, no, I cannot say that schools are just easily and have readily prepared and switched to virtual learning. Okay, Virtual learning is still a difficult bode for many schools and many communities based on poverty, based on access, based on resources. On top of that, if the wind blows, the Internet and the power is going out. That's a fair, that's <laughs> so, a fair point as well. So, you know, even for those schools are in more affluent areas that um, all of their students are one to one and they have a very well developed plan for virtual learning. You get that storm surge and the wind starts blowing and I don't care what kind of devices you have. You have no power. Right. All, this, all very valid points because we've always kind of thought, you know, we associate days off with snow days. But here in the South, yeah. you know, we it's hurricanes and tornadoes. That's so, right. so that's true. So I guess your prediction is we will not see them try to have to continue school, you know, just because of a weather day. You think that's going to shut down? I think they will offer opportunities. They will offer um, like a lot of things that teachers are doing right now is is developing pre-recorded instructional videos so that the students can go back and watch it as many times as they need to, sort of like um, mimicking reteaching practices in the classroom. I think that school districts on the coast will make sure that there's content in their learning management system. I think they're going to make sure that there's resources there for children. But at the end of the day, they are all at the mercy of Mother Nature. Well, and so the only way, though, and I'm just giving my two cents and being honest, the only way that it's even really worth it for a district to try to pull that off is because, you know, it'll prevent them from having to make up those days at a, at a later date. Um, Absolutely. And, sch- and schedules are already compressed. So I think, like, it's either going to... Either they're going to try to do it, you know, and say, we actually had a a day of learning remotely, and that counts and checks that box as one of those days for the year, or they're not. I don't know. Um, well, let's be clear. At the beginning of the year, we were still required to provide 180 days of instruction for students. Mm-hmm. But that has been waived by the Mississippi Department of Education for our state. Okay. And so you have some schools that just, you know, a lot of schools in our state that just recently started. I can't be sh- for sure if we have any that are actually starting tomorrow. But at the end of the day, that has already been waived. Okay. Well, so I good. don't see the struggle or the battle. Yeah. What I see is them probably reporting it in. And being able to, you know, make up the situation, say day one or two, yep, we've got wind, we've got water, we power is out, we're struggling. And then day three, the sun is shining, let's get ourselves back together. We can get some work made up now. One other story I want to update our listeners on, um, we talked about it several episodes ago, and that was our Secretary of Education. She um, was kind of pushing to force the, the CARES Act money to go towards private school and we broke down kind of what that meant but there was a certain portion mm-hmm. that we would have to put towards private school well apparently a uh, federal judge has ruled that um she cannot do that she quote acted beyond its authority uh and also misinterpreted the will of congress so um, one federal judge put a stop to kind of forcing to funnel that money towards private schools um not to say it can't be appealed but that's where we are right now so I- i'm really happy to hear that to be honest with mm-hmm. you me, me as well. Um, and, and again, I, the one that 
me being such a, a checks and balance type person and kind of believer in in the systems that we have in place, it's that mm-hmm. misinterpret the will of Congress that I feel like is is the most important one. If Congress, you know, said this is what the money's for, then that's what it should be for. Uh, right. An executive branch of the government shouldn't be able to come in and reinterpret that. So I'm, I'm glad to see I that agree. work out as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about it for today. Are you ready for uh, today's bright idea? Oh, I'm so excited about it. Our guest in today's Bright Ideas segment teaches business writing and communication at the University of Southern California. Dr. A.J. Ogilvie is going to explain why a liberal arts degree is so important. It just may need a slight tweaking and rebranding. A.J., welcome back to the show. Thanks very much, Nick. I will admittedly say I have been critical on the show. And what I mean by that is, you know, we worry that sometimes people may go to school for, say, something like English or philosophy. And then you kind of worry about, well, how do I earn money with that degree? But you are here to explain to me why I'm wrong, right? <laughs> yes, this is this is uh, this is definitely along those lines, and I think um, uh, these are I, I too am critical of of how we talk about and, and think about um, the liberal arts, and I think um, a good liberal arts thinker would would encourage critic being critical about the liberal arts. That this is probably a good point, and and so before we jump into what those your reasoning is behind that. Let's first define together, and, and you do this in your research paper, and I'll link to it in the show notes, but um, let's define what we we're talking about when we're talking about liberal arts, because that can be a broad term. Sure. And um, what I mean by liberal arts is, um, I'll, I'll, be, I'll give a, a specific model, is that um, you would major in a particular uh, discipline. Uh, it could be business, it, 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 which is not considered like a, a classic liberal arts um, discipline, but so you you could be a business major, but you your overall experience is a liberal arts experience in that you're a business major, but you also will take classes across different disciplines and domains. So you could take um, a sociology course, you'll take an anthropology course, you could take a cultural studies course, um, a language course, and so uh, I think the key aspect of uh, when I talk about the liberal arts education is that, um, it involves a student having one major, but also taking classes across different domains. And the, 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 the goal is that you're, you experience, um, different kinds of knowledges and different kinds of ways of thinking about, uh, human phenomena and, and the world. And you, you open up in your paper and you kind of already have mentioned this, that you admit that the liberal arts degree is under fire, correct? Absolutely. Um, and, and what do you think the main reason is? Well, I think that um, I, there's multiple diagnoses of this. And I, I, so just one that I, I might throw out is that um, in general, universities and colleges, especially their curriculum, uh, is they, they're conservative in the sense that they, they're, they don't really evolve quickly. Um, or and when we when I say quickly, like the the way we think about things in sort of like I guess we would say the private or the you know the commercial sector, that um, you know I've been involved in a couple curriculum redesigns and these can uh, to to change the curriculum of a university uh, is a significant significant effort and can take um, you know ten years uh, five wow. years yeah and and you know when you tell that to someone outside of academia or something they say well why does it take so long and and maybe there's good reasons for that that you know that that the reasons why colleges and universities have endured is because 
they've stuck to what they do really well. But I do think that um, post 2008, uh, the recession and um, a, a significant reason is the cost of college these days that people have really that we've become the question of what what's the value of college has become much sharper and and much more significant and i think we see kind of you know you'll see a new york times story of like a an english major graduating with a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt you know and, right and and these are um these kind of amplify uh and and reveal like these larger issues going on and i don't want to put words in your mouth but as i read through your paper um I interpret it like this. I, I almost interpreted that you're suggesting, and you're not saying you have all the answers, but you're suggesting that if we looked at the liberal arts as rather than just liberal arts, and instead we almost redefined it as we're giving people the education and the tools to be a translator of language in the workplace, there might be a lot more value to it. Yeah. So my idea is that we'll work backwards, right? Let's maybe we'll work backwards from what does the world look like right now? And, um, or what, what is it like to work? What kinds of knowledges and abilities and skills are valuable? And, um, uh, I often think of something like Facebook, for example. So, um, the, the knowledge that developed Facebook was technical knowledge, like computer science knowledge. Um, but currently, you know, at the top levels at Facebook, they're not using technical knowledge anymore that they might have learned in college. They're not coding anymore. What right. they're using is pe- people knowledge. Um, and so w- some of the challenges that, you know, places like Google and Facebook are facing are, are human-centered challenges on how people think about privacy, about how different groups of people think about what is what is moral? What is right and wrong? And so what I'm getting at is that if you wanted to be, if you're at Facebook right now or Google or a tech company or at a lot of places, that the kinds of knowledge that you need right now is not, is not something that you'll necessarily find in a textbook. It's, it's partly experience, but it's partly um, you need to be kind of like translating uh, what your company does uh, for, for humans and uh, like that are your customers, but, or your clients or your stakeholders, but also people outside of that. Um, another example, when Amazon started, it it was an online bookseller and currently it's a TV studio. Um, it's a, uh, space exploration company. And so what I'm, what I think is interesting is that as Amazon evolved, someone had to translate how Amazon, how do you move from being a online bookseller to being a TV studio? And you have to translate some things from what you were to, to the new, this new domain. And in a liberal arts school, um, in a liberal arts education, you're constantly taking classes across different domains. And admittedly, one of the things that I, I believe colleges and universities could do better is um, helping students make sense of what they're learning. So like you, 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 you were, you took a liberal arts education and do you remember taking classes, you know, across all these different disciplines? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, from, and, you know, different languages to, I mean, really, really everything. Of course I took the, the five-year track and I, I switched my major a couple of times. So it's all kind of a blur, but yes. Yeah. And I wonder like, 
I, I mean, I'm kind of setting you up a little bit maybe, but I wonder what if you had taken a class that said, um, that kind of like tried to organize all of those experiences um, and said, well, wh- what do I know now as a result of taking a class in French and a class in history? Um, what are what are some things that what are some general principles or like big ideas that we learn in each of those classes uh, that apply across all of them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, marketing stands out to me. I end up taking a marketing course and the whole like 80-20 principle and things like that seems to apply just about wherever I look and, and different different tools that I've used learned there. Yeah, and I, and I think the other the other big argument um, that I would make about kind of being a translator is that like one under, often under discussed aspect of being a translator is that you're you have to be really open to learning and and she needs to understand how she learns things and I, I'd argue that you know so when you take a class in French you need to learn about yourself as a learner of a language. Um, am I learning at a rate that I think I should be? Or what do I, what do I, how is, how am I learning in the best way? And what we know, and this is massive right now in the, in the workforce is that many organizations and companies, they want people who are really good learners. Um, They want people who aren't afraid of, of confronting new technologies and new kinds of knowledge that, that, you know, that they've never seen before. The word, the word translator, I mean, that, that kind of your, your entire research seems to kind of revolve around that word. Um, and I feel like it's kind of key. So let's drill down there a little bit more. Yeah. And if, if I'm understanding it right, as I read through your work, um, you highlighted as an example, no child left behind, which everyone who listens to this podcast has a very clear understanding what no child left behind was. But, yeah. you know, when it was passed through back during the Bush administration, um, you talk about how the language no child left behind was really crucial to that bill getting passed correct yes and so that's the other aspect of the the language centric dimension of being a translator is really having a feel for how language works and really having an understanding of how do i arrange um, how do i arrange particular words ideas and concepts so that my user or my reader can do something with that, that language. And, um, in the article, I talk about framing and framing is a theory that, um, comes out of a lot of different places, but George Lakoff is famous for it. And he's a, um, a professor out of Berkeley. And the idea is that I think, um, I think what we would do in a liberal arts education or what we could do better is center the way language operates in different domains. And so what I'm kind of getting at is like, I'll crudely call it like, how do we, how do you sell your ideas? And um, so the average person coming out of college today will change jobs every three years. So one argument I make is how are we helping students learn to move across these different, um, these different jobs and these different industries? Like, and how are we helping them learn to use language to translate their previous experience and abilities to sell that, to sell that experience and ability to a new uh, employee, or I'm sorry, a new employer or a new field. And um, at the core is this idea of like thinking deeply about how words work and how, um, how we arrange ideas. And I think a liberal arts education probably could do this better. But across history, like if you take a history course or um, if you take a sociology course, uh, a key part of that will be um, 
studying how in those domains language works uh, to, to, to create meaning for people. And, and so if I understand right with the, the no child left behind thing, I want to make sure our listening oh, yeah. audience understands that you were not necessarily applauding the legislation as much as you were, I think, applauding the creativity of, of naming it no child left behind. Correct. Yeah. Or um, just describing it uh, and saying, you know, framing is really powerful. And my, I, I talk about the example of no child left behind as a way of pointing to how framing works in the political arena. And my argument, in a sense, to, to advocates of the liberal arts is that we need, to, we need to think about framing. Like, how are we framing the liberal arts? How are we persuading people that the liberal arts is valuable? And, and I think one tool we could use is framing. And so No Child Left Behind is, frames this educational, massive educational reform as a, essentially like education is a, a battle, right, or, or war. And then what's activated around that idea is there's good and there's good and bad in war. And, um, you know, the, the original phrase is no man left behind. And that's, that's an injured man. And, um, there's a lot of heroicism. And so essentially like these ling- this language, uh, choices underneath little child left behind are, are trying to set people up to think about this reform act as, as a version of heroism and in, in the context of war makes it um, hard to vote against. It does because you, yes, I want to, I've, you know, I, I want to leave children behind. No, you know, no, uh, no one wants to say that. And so, so my understanding you write by saying like this, that type of command of language, uh, command of being a translator is, is just one example of a skill that you, you, people should be getting and using when you get a liberal arts degree. Exactly, and 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 you're you're actually making my article better um, in, in a way. <laughs> no, really, you are. These questions are really good. Is like that. I think that some students develop this naturally, like this idea of that language matters. So, for example, in history. You know, one of the ideas of taking a history course is not not just to learn, especially in college, is, is not to learn that, you know, something happened in 1856 and something happened in 1857. And, you know, like, it's more that history is a is essentially um, a series of competing of competing stories about the past. And it can serve as a compass in the future, I guess. Right. Well, yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, how the way we tell the story of the past serves a particular purpose in the future. Um, so, you know, like any, like anytime we talk about any current political issue, we often say, well, a similar thing happened in the past. And then there's usually a debate about that thing that happened in the past. Mm -hmm. And so a historian is trying to figure out, well, how am I going to tell the story in a way that, you know, conveys my view of, of what actually happened? Okay. So in the liberal arts education, there's usually a writing course and, and sometimes it's called rhetoric. And maybe, maybe one idea is that, to further um, increase this notion of translator as a as something that someone becomes from taking the liberal arts is you you know you have this writing course, but you also have another class on um, that could be the rhetoric of history or the rhetoric of sociology or just with a with a with a more um, emphasis on how like language and meaning work it work in these disciplines. But the other thing is just the experience of writing. And communicating in these different domains that do you, do you remember writing to a history professor and then 
maybe having to like change, change course. And then, okay, now this is like, I'm writing for a marketing professor. Or now I'm writing for a, you know, a yeah, sociologist. Your audience. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, that, that idea of if you're just stuck in one domain for four years that you're not, you're not necessarily learning to, to write for different kinds of people who have different needs and expectations. And so I, I don't want to get ahead of you and your thoughts, you know, here, please but it, 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 it almost, it almost sounds like if, if, if you would, um, you know, you could get this degree rather than a liberal arts degree. I am a translator. I, I have a translator's degree. So <laughs> it might be more appealing to the tech company, uh, you know, to say, you know, hire me as your translator. I understand, you know, language and how to communicate and so forth. I mean, is that kind of what you're going for? Are you, are you suggesting maybe we need to, to look at liberal arts differently and possibly rebrand it? Well, I, I don't know. This is a really good question. And I don't know if it's necessarily like, you know, I, I think that there are likely other other frames that can be used. Um, in the article, I talk about how like we often say, oh, the liberal arts does, you know, creates critical thinkers. And but I, 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 I like I don't necessarily know if that's an effective frame anymore. And then or, or for as many audiences as as possible. Um, I also talk about how, you know, a central reason that many people go to college is, is an economic purpose. Like I, ha- you know, I'm going to do this for four years and then afterwards I'm, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, survive. I'm going to make money and pay my rent or, you know, and so I guess like, I think partly the liberal arts, one of the challenges is, is developing an argument that, that is framed around that idea that I'm, you know, I'm here to, to ultimately develop a successful career. Um, so to call it like the translator degree, um, I'm not sure, you know, one of the things I always say to engineering students is, uh, and it's not my own line is, um, if you don't write well as an engineer, you will work for an engineer that does. Um, that's a good line. Yeah. yeah. And so the idea is that the people who move up and the people who develop like management or leadership or the people who start companies are the people who really know how to use language. Um, there's, you know, another argument I make is that there's no, there's no such thing as like a thought leader in any domain, whether it's like tech or uh, business or law, um, whatever it may be, that isn't a writer. And so, um, or, or isn't a good communicator. And so within like what I would make an argument to someone is that if you, if you want to be successful in any field, you will need to know how to communicate within that field. Well, so a general, like there actually are, um, more and more, there are degrees that are called uh, a professional writing major, or there are minors around like professional writing and, um, or there's technical writing. And, um, so I think those are like really great starts and, but those are like kind of particular positions in, in those, in those fields, a general translator degree. I, I'm not sure I'd have to think about it more, but, um, you know, one of the arguments that people often make about the liberal arts is that it, it like people from the liberal arts are good, are, are better communicators. Um, and maybe my argument is like, how do we make that more visible? You know, there back in um, I think a 2015 issue of Forbes magazine, there was a an article, uh, and it was titled "That Useless Liberal Arts Degree Has Become Tech's Hottest Ticket." And, and I think it's very much in line with kind of what you're talking about. Um, and and it talks about specifically they use Slack 
technologies, which is um, uh, for a lot of people who don't know what Slack is, it's basically like the business's new version of email and communication and, and tons of large companies are using it. But they take a deep dive into how the company Slack is is actually looking for exactly what you're talking about, or these these people with these liberal arts degrees that are good communicators. So, um, you know, I, I'll say this, I, while I have knocked the liberal arts in the sense of like, you know, why would you go to school and take on that big loan? Um, if you know, you, you don't have as much ability to go to different businesses. Um, you know, why do that? But I think you make a really good point in the sense that maybe businesses are looking for these people. Yes. And you know, I, I know the article, the Forbes article you're referring to, and, um, I think the founder, the CEO of Slack, um, either was a philosophy undergrad or and or has a master's in philosophy. I think you're right. And says that, I think he says daily that he's drawing on, um, you know, some of those, those ideas. And the other component of this, I think that we're getting at is that there's at a college and university or like a, a four year experience at college, there's the, there's the curriculum part. And then there's that other part that's, what am I going to do after this? (laughs) And so like, this is kind of the career center things, but like career advising. And I think that this is another part of the way we should think about the liberal arts, because I think I know that you can be an English major or a French major, and you can go work at a tech firm. Um, You will need to do certain things, though, to make that happen. You'll need to have an internship or you'll need to make the case to these, these companies if you wanted to do that. Um, so I think uh, another, another goal of college is helping students learn to talk about themselves um, in ways that are persuasive. Yeah, I imagine you're probably right there. And and what are you hearing? Like, as a university professor, do you all have the opportunity to talk to businesses and, and what they're looking for in students? It's interesting that you say that because I am, um, I am active. I, I've recently been, I've been reaching out to businesses and I go talk to them about, well, what, what kinds of thinking are you looking for and what do you find to be valuable? Um, and I spoke recently with a partner at, uh, one of the top consulting firms and he said, my people can't write, you know, it takes, he says it takes a couple of years for people to get where I want them to be with writing. Um, and then I talked to another partner at one of the big four accounting firms and he said, writing is everything. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that the challenge is that we do hear from employers saying we want, you know, to me, I think what they really want or a key thing that I hear is like, they want people who can learn, you know, they want people who can adapt and, um, they want people who can communicate. Um, and so that's the need from the employer side and what we have to have students do on their, well, help them develop is the ability to, to speak to those needs. Well, uh, Dr. AJ Ogilvie with the uh, University of Southern California, again, we, we appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk about this. It's a really fascinating topic and, uh, I will link to your work in our show notes. If anybody wants to, to track that down, how can somebody get in touch with you if they have any questions? Yep, they can email me at um, A Ogilvy, so it's A O G I L V as in Victor, I E at usc.edu. And I'd, um, I'm really open and love to hear other people's ideas about, about this uh, topic. 
Awesome. Thanks so much. And again, uh, thank you for taking the time to chat with us. I really enjoyed it, Nick. Thank you very much. That's going to do it for this episode of Class Dismissed. If you want to send us an idea or comment, remember you can always email us at info at classdismissedpodcast.com or tweet us at classdismissed. We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed. Thank you.